Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back with you for another interactive class. Tonight, we're going to be diving into the world of tulpas and sentient thought forms. And if you don't know what either one of those are, that's okay. Um, tulpa is really a, it's a Buddhist concept. And if the, the word, if you actually type it in to your, uh, I don't know, your, uh, you know, your Microsoft Word or your Gmail or something like that, it's going to get a nice little red underline. And a lot of people aren't familiar with, with the word. In fact, when I people ask me about it, they usually misspell it uh, with an O, like T-O-L-P-A, but it's T-U-T-U-L-P-A. In any case, spelling aside, we're going to get into this evening with some really, really interesting concepts Real for uh, real quick first though, however, see you've done a lot of practice here. For those watching the simulcast and listening to the podcast version later, please join us here every Wednesday night, eight o'clock p.m. Eastern time for the full Connecting the Universe experience on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. These are to those that are listening to this later on, like Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, KGRA, uh, UnX Network, KPNL, all those. Join us here live every Wednesday. Uh, there's a 30-day free trial, uh, which gives you access to, of course, the weekly Connecting the Universe class, which is what we're doing right now. Sneak peek behind-the-scenes videos, monthly Q&A videos, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs like Ancient Egypt, which we're going back to in February. Come join us. Uh, the American Southwest, Ireland was just posted this past summer. All this and more at ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Okay. So let's get into the class question for this evening, which I think is the one thing I forgot to actually load uh, as an image. But uh, let me go ahead and grab that real quick because I have last week's image loaded up. Go figure that, right? And basically, it's a, it's a Slender Man photo. Maybe I should have used the little necromancer guy. I don't know. Because... Uh, the question was, if you could create your own tulpa or sentient thought form, who or what would it be? And again, maybe I should have used the little necromancer guy to give a better idea. But I thought people would associate or understand Slender Man and kind of the concepts behind that. Uh, so, and we are going to be talking about him later this evening. Uh, so Jin LeBay did say, uh, I would want the voice of reason, wisdom, and grace basically my Nana, to prevent me from doing the wrong thing, making poor choices, and saying something snarky. So that's that's interesting. So basically uh, to create almost kind of like your conscience, right? <laughs> you know, let your conscience be your guy. Jiminy Cricket, your Nana. Um, yeah, that's a, that would be an interesting uh, being to create uh, with, the, with the Tulpa concept. So, and I know some of the, uh, some people that are listening to this later are still wondering, okay, what the heck is a, is a tulpa? Uh, yeah, we are talking about a sentient thought form. So, yes, the idea of uh, something becoming sentient by your own thoughts. So, basically, just a, a quick definition here uh, as we are talking about this concept. A tulpa is a type of supernatural entity that takes on the form of a character from legend and folklore and acts out that persona. It literally means manifestation. This concept originated in Tibet within early Buddhist texts about the ability to create mind-made body and is the basis of the thought form. Some beliefs include human beings creating their own tulpas purely from thought, 
manipulating invisible energy into visible forms. Uh, that's basically a paragraph out of my book, A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, because I get asked many, many times, are shadow people tulpas or can they be tulpas? Can a tulpa be a shadow person? That sort of thing. We are also going to be touching on that. In fact, that's going to be our first example of this this evening. So basically the way we're going to break this down, uh, we're going to get into a detailed example of kind of a more modern type of tulpa, basically, um, you know, way back in the 1900s, <laughs> 20th century. Uh, but most of us were not around for this. But it's an interesting example. Uh, then we're going to get into the, you know, the origins of this, or at least from, you know, like 100, 120 years ago, the research that was done into um, this type of concept. And even, I guess, maybe a little bit earlier than that when we get into uh, some things out of the spiritualism movement. And then we're going to bring it um, quite more modern within the past 20 years. And there's some interesting things there. So that is the breakdown for this evening. So we're going to start with the shadow. Yes, the shadow knows. So this was really, really interesting. And I know I've mentioned this before when I've talked about shadow people. Because like I said, I get asked a lot of times, you know, are shadow people tulpas or can a tulpa be a shadow person? It's actually part of my presentation that I uh, give when I'm out on the road. It's a single slide and I limit it to about three minutes within there. We're doing a whole class on this this evening. But we're going to be starting with do, 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 Mothman prophecies, or at least we're going to be addressing that. Uh, why, you may ask? Well, it takes us back to uh, Walter B. Gibson. Now, Keel, in the Mothman prophecies, he proposed the concept of a tulpa really in the very first chapter, which and it had nothing to do with the Mothman at all. Um, but basically, he was addressing the case of a haunting in New York's Greenwich, Greenwich Village. Basically, this house right here, which is 12 Gay Street, Greenwich Village. It's an old house that had been investigated uh, way back in the day by Dr. Hans Holzer. People were reporting they were seeing a, uh, a phantom in a long black cape with a wide-brimmed hat. Uh, he's been moving from room to room, and some say this dark, ghostly figure was a spy from the American Revolution who was caught and killed in the house. Now, Holzer, when he investigated the house, because that's that's really where kind of the, the stories of this house came. So we're going to talk ghost stories for a minute here. Um, he investigated, discovered some different things going on, on with the house. It became one of his stories in this book right here. Yankee Ghosts, which the fascinating thing about this book for me was my mother, when we were moving out of Massachusetts, that was uh, October 1987. So do the math. Uh, 30, 35 years ago this month, she bought me this book as an interesting way for me to remember where I'd spent 10 years of my childhood. Well, Massachusetts. This incorporates stories out of New England plus New York. And so I'm going to read a little bit of here because this is the first book that this story appeared in. It's appeared in several of his other books since then, but 1966 
is the original publication of this book. My version, of course, is not uh, as long, but, or as old. So there's several people involved during this investigation, the people that are at the house, Holster's there, he has his medium with him, of course. Um, so this is what Holster says about what's going on there at the house. He says, I walked over to where Miss Hall, the gray-haired little lady, sat. Oh, is there is a ghost here, all right, she volunteered. It was in February of 1963, and I happened to be in the house, since the boys and I are good friends. I was sitting here in this very spot, relaxing and casually looking toward the entrance door through which you just came, the one that leads to the hallway and the stairs. There was a man there wearing evening clothes and an Ivernes cape. I saw him quite plainly. He had dark hair. It was dusk, and there was some, and there was still some light outside. What did you do? That's Holser asking the question. I turned my head to tell Frank Paris about the stranger. In that instant, he was gone like a puff of smoke. Paris broke in. I questioned her about this since I didn't really believe it. But a week later, at dawn this time, I saw the ghost myself, exactly as Alice had described him, wearing evening clothes, a cape, hat, and his face somewhat obscured by the shadows of the hallway. So this is basically a, you know, they're, they're calling it a ghost. It's some sort of shadowy figure hanging out there in the hallway, wearing a cape and a hat. Okay, so that's fascinating. That's interesting. Seems like a, you know, your classic ghost story. And, um, you know, Holster's Medium picked up on some, you know, different things, not necessarily regarding the, the guy in the cape, but some other things that happened there in the house. And so, you know, he published the story. Well, let's fast forward here a little bit. I, I mentioned the Mothman, John Keel. And his story had to do with Walter B. Gibson, who under the name Maxwell Grant, that was his pen name, wrote the Shadow Stories, the, the Shadow Pulp novels, which later became, of course, the, um, the radio show, The Shadow Knows. And so... This was a character who lurked in dark alleys and hallways wearing a cape and a wide-brimmed hat. And prior to uh, Gibson living, uh, I'm sorry. Yes, prior to Gibson living in the house, there had been no known reported hauntings, at least according to him. He knew of no hauntings within that house. Of course, it's a very old house uh, dating back to the early 1800s. So there was always the possibility that, yes, some other things were going on there, and, and maybe Gibson didn't pay notice to that because he was um, he was very passionate about his work. And so Keel in Mothman Prophecies uh, suggested that Gibson's powerful mind constantly creating the shadow stories uh, and projecting the character out to the universe uh, in in his writing, actually created the uh, thought form or what we call a tulpa, which became the shadow entity haunting the house uh, that Holser later investigated and they thought were actually ghosts. Okay. Stay with me here because Keel's not the only one that actually suggested this. This was a concept that actually... Uh, became pretty prevalent during the mid-1970s. So it's interesting. So Gibson was there basically during the 1930s. Holster investigated in the 60s. 
and, and wrote his story. Keel told his story in the Mothman prophecies in the 70s, and then Gibson, in an interview, also had a few things to say. So, first of all, the, the passion that, uh, that Gibson had for this character, uh, there were stories about him you know, working on multiple stories at once on different typewriters that he had set up around the house. So he would wander back and forth as, you know, one idea would come into his head and then maybe another and another. You know, they didn't they didn't have all the word processors, you know, back then. They they had to use typewriters. So he couldn't, you know, like on a computer here, I could flip back and forth between di different documents while I'm writing. Oh, okay, and, and I actually do. Yeah, my Microsoft Word, I have like... 10 different chapters open for uh, the Connecting the Universe book. And as different ideas come into my head, as I'm doing different research, boom, 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 I go into each document here, here, here. Um, with Gibson, he was actually walking around the house, uh, you know, kind of pacing back and forth, going from one typewriter to another. Uh, people talked about he would type until his fingers were swollen and bleeding. And on average, from 1931 to 1949, he produced two full shadow novels a month. And those were not his only writing projects. Uh, he was, for several years, actually the sole writer for the entire Shadow magazine, which always, of course, included the main Shadow novel within it, but then also several short stories by differing, quote-unquote, authors. And in many cases, he was those authors. So he'd kind of like put on a different persona, write in that voice for these other stories. And I totally relate to that because when I was the editor for the squadron newsletter, um, my last year there in the Air Force, um, there were a couple of people who su uh, submitted articles, but others were like, hey, I've got this idea. I want to write about this. And that was it. And it's like, what we need the article. So all of a sudden I was typing up all these articles into uh, the newsletter. And so most of it was me. <laughs> I totally relate to that. So, all right. So Gibson did actually comment on this himself. So what he said in a 1975 interview is people see a man in evening clothes moving in and out, but that was where I wrote the last shadow. And what they're seeing is Lamont Cranston. They're seeing what we call an after-image psychic projection, not a ghost. So it's really interesting. You have the guy that actually lived in within the house talking about him manifesting a projection of his character into the house, which, of course, you know, was, was also supported by John Keel and the Mothman prophecies, which is... Um, it's first chapter, section three, and um, let me try to throw down a few words here. Um, it says, the ghost may not be a member of the restless dead at all. There were never any reports of hauntings there until about 20 years ago after the house was vacated by a writer named Walter Gibson. He was and is an extraordinarily prolific author. For many years, he churned out a full-length novel each month, and many of those novels were written in the house in Greenwich Village. All of them were centered around the spectacularly successful character Gibson created in the 1930s, that nemesis of evil known as The Shadow. If you've ever read any of The Shadow novels, you know that he was fond of lurking in dark hallways dressed in a cape and broad-brimmed hat. 
and it goes on. Again, has nothing to do with the Mothman. Um, and, and he does go on actually specifically uh, talking about tulpas. Uh, people who, who see ghosts or the wandering shadow uh, have these abilities, basically creating a tulpa. Uh, they are appearing at forms that are always there, always present around us like radio waves. And when certain conditions exist, they can see these things. The Tibetans believe that advanced human minds can manipulate these invisible energies into visible forms called tulpas or thought projections. Did Walter Gibson's intense concentration on his shadow novels inadvertently bring a tulpa into existence? And so that's what we're going to be exploring this evening. Um, kind of a, a long intro into all of that, but we are going to be talking about uh, these uh, Buddhist Tibetan concepts. So I see a lot of comments have uh, been thrown down uh, into the chat while uh, you know, we've, been, we've been discussing this. Uh, so Jin saying, oh, global consciousness is some of what the transcendental meditation movement tries to achieve. Interesting question. So I guess I missed a question, but um, yes, meditation does play into this. So, okay. And the question was from Sarah. Uh, could a global consciousness be considered a tulpa? When we get into the idea of slender man, that's basically the concept behind it, is that there was enough power uh, put into this by several people to bring him into an actual existence because he started off as fiction, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, and then the question, what criteria is necessary to create a tulpa? Depends on who you talk to, but uh, we are going to be talking about some of those different uh, concepts here. So, Okay. Um, anybody else? Um, all right. I think we are good. Um, Mary, you're coming up as Facebook user. So please go ahead and set your settings there. Streamyard.com slash Facebook. So I can see your name properly in the chat. All right. So let's push on to Tibet. Specifically, Alexandra David Nail. Now, recall, okay, Buddhist concept, mind-made body, and the Buddha's ability to project many forms. All right. So who's Alexandra David Nail? Well, originally, she was an opera singer. She was born in the mid-1800s, um, spent quite a bit of time uh, in the opera, and uh, but she was also a very learned individual. Uh, she was a spiritualist. She was a writer. Uh, she, in her travels as an opera singer, uh, became very curious about the cultures of some of the different places that she was visiting. In 1924, um, she had visited, I hope I pronounced this cor correctly, Lhasa, L-H-A-S-A, -A, in Tibet, which at the time was still forbidden to foreigners. So if she was not supposed to be there, uh, but she was basically in a uh, in disguise, and this is supposed to be a, a photo from there. Uh, she's the one in the middle, and you can see how she's looking very uh, dirty and haggard and, and all of that. Uh, she spent a 14-year odyssey throughout Tibet, India, other countries in that part of the world. We're talking like China, Mongolia, 
Japan, Korea, uh, but most of it around the India-Tibet area. And over the course of her life, she wrote over 30 books on Eastern religion and philosophy, of course, following all of this experience that she had. She also spent uh, three years, 1918 and 1921, at uh, the Kumbum Monastery in Tibet, where she, along with this young man behind her, uh, Afri Yongden, uh, he was a young Indian man that she had adopted as a son, uh, translated the the famous, again, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Prajna Paramita. It's a uh, you know, esoteric Indian text, which I have not read. So it might be something I, I want to do <laughs> at some point. In any case, um, she had actually observed these ancient practices of thought form, projection, still being conducted in Tibet and described tulches as, tulpas as, quote-unquote, magic formations generated by a powerful concentration of thought. She stated that tulpas could develop a mind of their own and others could see the tulpas she created. Tibetan monks likened this to a child leaving the mother's womb. Once the body is complete, it is able to live apart. So I will say this, some of this, uh, like that part there, that little paragraph, um, basically I yank that straight from the article that we have on the back end of the Connected Universe portal. So everybody who's watching this live is a member of the Connected Universe portal. There is a lengthy article uh, on the back end, within the article section, on Tulpas. Uh, I originally posted that to my personal blog uh, some years ago, but when I revamped the websites, pulled it off my personal site, and it's your guys' back end. Only you guys have access to it. So definitely uh, worth checking out. In any case, so there's something I do want to read here that is from uh, her work, which is really, really interesting. So this is Alexandra David Niel's uh, work from uh, Magicians and Mystics, Chapter 3. And uh, she, had, she had met the Dalai Lama at the time. She says, As I have related it in the first chapter of the present book, I met the Dalai Lama in 1912 when he was living in the Himalayas and asked him several questions regarding Lamaist doctrine, which he first answered orally. Afterward, in order to avoid misunderstandings, he told me to write a list of new questions on the points which still appeared to me obscure. To these he gave written answers. The present quotation is taken from the document with which the Dalai Lama favored me. So this is a quote from, uh, from 1912, Dalai Lama, concerning Tulpas. It says, Amaruzavata a being who has attained the high degree of spiritual perfection immediately below that of a Buddha, is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration, and maybe that would also be called meditation, just a little sidebar there by Mike, uh, in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may at one and the same time show a phantom tulpa written Spropa of himself in thousands, millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any forms he chooses, 
even those of inanimated objects, such as hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. Another Mike sidebar. Um, we did have an episode of, it was either Beyond the Shadows or Inside the Upside Down years ago, asking the question, can a house be a tulpa? I don't think we're going to have time to cover that this evening, but just want to throw that in there. Okay, back to the Dalai Lama. Uh, he may produce atmospheric phenomena as well as the thirst-quenching beverage of immortality. And this is uh, Alexandra. Uh, the latter expression I have been advised to take in both a literal and a symbolic sense. In fact, reads the conclusion, there is no limit to his power of phantom creation. The theory sanctioned in these lines by the highest authority of official Lamaism is identical with that expounded in the Maya, <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, Mayayanist literature, where it is said that an accomplished Bodhavizata, I apologize for my pronunciation, is capable of affecting 10 kinds of magic creations. The power of producing magic formations, tolkas, or less lasting and materialized tulpas does not, however, belong exclusively to such mystic exalted beings. Any human, divine, or demoniac being may be possessed of it. The only difference comes from the degree of power, and this depends on the strength of the concentration and the quality of the mind itself. Okay, that was a lot, I know. <laughs> that was quite a bit. But, um, you know, very, very interesting that, you know, she's getting these, these quotes in this direction straight from the Dalai Lama himself over 100 years ago. So these were you know, ideas and concepts that had been passed down uh, through the ages. The idea that you sit long enough in a meditative state that what you basically can conjure up in your mind, you can project out into the universe. So this really has a lot of, you know, when we talk law of attraction, the secret, that sort of stuff, you know, we're talking about using the power of the mind to, uh, you know, to manifest, to manifest different things in your life. Now with law of attraction, the secret, all that, I mean, we're not talking about uh, manifesting sentient beings, or, you know, according to the Dalai Lama here, you can manifest hills, enclosures, houses, roads, all this other stuff too, uh, which would be fascinating. If the bridge is out, just think it and, you know, boom, the bridge is back. That would be pretty wild. Um, you know, but we've even seen, you know, ideas like that, you know, in the Bible, you know, if you, uh, you could move mountains and, and things like that. Uh, so, you know, the power of the mind and, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, that whole idea of manifesting different things into your life where with um, the law of attraction, it's more of a, you know, personal journey. Can I bring uh, different things into my life? Can I, uh, I, I, like the secret has that whole example of the parking space and just, you know, concentrate on uh, going into whatever parking lot, grocery store, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and I've tried this, you know, put in your head that you're, that's the spot you're going to get and you drive into the parking lot and boom, there it is. That sort of thing. 
but with a tulpa, we're actually talking about a physical being or it's some sort of physical object. In Walter B. Gibson's case, it was the shadow. He had put enough thought and energy into it. He didn't really purposefully create it. That just sort of happened on its own with all the passion that he was putting into it. Let's see if you guys have some questions or comments. Um, Sarah says, it sounds like he's saying the creation of multiverses can be originated through concentration. Uh, could it be the universal connection? So I, I can't deny that if you put enough thought into it, you could spin off your own, um, your own alternate universe. That might take a lot. Because <laughs> people, as we, as we get into this, it seems to be a... Um, you know, already enough to create one being, to create an entire universe where you're talking you know, multiple planets, solar systems, galaxies, that sort of thing. That would be a lot, but I guess not impossible, huh? Uh, Jen says diners. Now that was really, really interesting uh, because yeah, we were on our way back out of um, Atlanta, driving back north. And Jen was wanting to find a, a diner to eat at. She she had that uh, desire, you know, I'd really like to have breakfast at, at a diner. Okay, we'll find a diner. And very next exit, boom, Marietta Diner. There it was, and which is like the, the biggest and best diner in the area. Whoa, okay, awesome. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was very, very cool. Um. All right, so uh, Sarah, could the origination of poltergeist contribute to the creation of Tulpa? So I will say this when it comes to uh, the poltergeists. We're talking about two different things. Because I know what you're referring to. You're referring to poltergeist activity. A poltergeist is still a noisy ghost, okay? But poltergeist activity, poltergeist type activity is really the way it should be said is when, and I've been on cases like this before, when there's so much going on with, usually it's like an adolescent girl. I also believe this is what happened in the Robert the Doll case. There's so much energy um, that is being expelled by uh, the person that it is causing this, what seems to be paranormal activity happen around the house. Uh, and so, you know, it seems like there's a poltergeist in the house but it's actually originating with the person. So that would be poltergeist type activity that's happening in the house as a result of the person. Um, so is that similar to what ended up happening with Gibson? The difference here is that usually we end up determining that it's centered around this person because when they leave the house, the activity stops happening. Where with Gibson, he left, he moved out, he'd been gone for years, and the thing was still there. So it's a little bit different there. Okay, let's move on. So, because we have some others that are, are involved here. Uh, William Walker Atkinson. Uh, so he was a pioneer of the New Thought Movement, uh, and 
he also talked about these sorts of things uh, around the turn of the 20th century, talking about the thought form, projection of the aura. Uh, in his 1912 book, The Human Aura, uh, he talked about thought forms that were ethereal objects emanating from the auras of people. And he later elaborated that thought forms from auras serve as astral projections that may or may not look like the person projecting them, uh, which is something I kind of hint at when um, when I'm talking about, and, and I do this in, in my shadow person presentation, when I'm talking about the possibility that some uh, shadow people that are witnessed may actually be astral projections, that if you are you're in a meditative state, and you are, you know, projecting your consciousness. I use the example of, you know, a grandmother that knows how to astral project. She's like 500, 1,000 miles away from, you know, her daughter and her granddaughter. Not really um, convenient for her to just drive in a car and go visit. But she knows how to astral project and just wants to, you know, check, check in on her uh, daughter and granddaughter. Projects her consciousness into the house, you know, checks on the daughter, okay, everything's good there. You know, like maybe doing this at night when everybody's asleep. So, um, and then goes in and checks in on the granddaughter. Oh, she's looking good. And what happens if one of them wakes up? What do they see if she has projected her consciousness into the house? Do they see a shadow? Do they see what some people call like a shimmer type person? You know, we're talking energy and consciousness that is, you know, now at this particular location, all these miles away. What does that look like? And so this is, to me, similar to what Atkinson is talking about with the quote-unquote aura, um, you know, projecting an aura, projecting consciousness, projecting that energy uh, across many miles. What does that look like? So um, in a sense, it's, you know, thought form-ish because you are thinking to do this. You're in a meditative state and you are consciously willing this to happen. So then there is uh, Annie Besant, uh, theosophist from the, uh, again, around the same time frame, late 1800s, early, early 1900s. Uh, she published a book in 1901, well, co-authored it, uh, called Thought Forms. And she she basically broke down thought forms into three different classes. One, forms in the shape of the thinker. Again, this is kind of like what we were just talking about uh, with astral projection, would, would take the form of you know, the person uh, that's actually projecting. Two, forms that resemble some material object. So this could be like, you know, the bridges and houses and hills and things like that that we were talking about before. Or three, forms that take a shape entirely their own, expressing inherent qualities of matter, such as emotion. So this is where we start to get into the idea of uh, sentient beings, that this, this thought that has been projected out there will start to think for itself and start to have its own emotions and things like this. So the book itself, and this is just kind of a screenshot of that that I found online, uh, the work covers creating thought forms through emotion, so your emotion, uh, through experiences, through meditation, and also through music. Um, and yeah, music, well, music can put you into a meditative state anyway. Uh, these forms are rep represented through a myriad of colors and images, and you kind of get an example of that here. 
representations of forms actually observed as thrown off by ordinary men and women. Besant and the other authors of thought forms wish to help the reader, quote unquote, realize the nature and power of his thoughts, acting as a stimulus to the noble, a curb on the base, unquote. Uh, again, that's I, I grabbed that straight from my uh, Topa article on the Connecting Universe portal. So Bassant, as well as other theosophists, considered thought forms like a painter who forms an idea in his mind and projects what's in his mind to the canvas. When it's projected out into the world as a sentient being, that is a Topa. So, again, uh, you're talking meditative state, um, you the, the idea of using music uh, to aid in this process is, is fascinating. Uh, you know, music for many, many people uh, speaks to the soul, speaks to uh, a variety of different emotions. So to be able to use music to do that actually makes a whole lot of sense. There's some other comments down here. Um, Tom McNicholas is in the house. All right, Tom. He says, I rarely get phone calls. Be super shocked if someone asked or projected into my place. Well, you never know, Tom. Um, you, you do have a plethora of friends who, um, who are in this esoteric field that may one day, you know, want to check up on you for one reason or another. I know that when we were, uh, you know, all locked down into COVID, that I think everybody was curious as to how others were doing. We were all worried for each other. So um, we love you, Tom. Um, and yeah, Tom, uh, sort of a, a telekinesis. And that's basically what we're talking about. You know, the, the power the power of the mind here. What can we actually do with it? We've, we've had other classes on uh, unconsciousness itself. And this is you know, really kind of one aspect of it. Uh, the manifestation of an actual object or sentient being. And so that really takes us into, uh, like I said, we're going to go uh, into more more modern times. You know, we started 20th century, then we went to like turn of the 20th century, like 19th and uh, 20th century. And now we're going into the 2000s, 21st century, Slenderman. Okay. What is going on here with Slenderman? Well, Slenderman, for one, uh, is fiction. Okay, uh, I, I know there have been a lot of uh, videos and stories and articles. Of course, there's a movie. There's the unfortunate um, attempted murder of um, two adolescent girls trying to murder their friend in the name of Slenderman. These sorts of things that have happened. Uh, but he is a, originally a work of fiction. Slenderman was created online in 2009 as part of a Photoshop contest thread in the Something Awful forums by Eric Knudsen under the name Victor Surge. That was his handle on the, on the forum. And basically, the contest invited users to create paranormal images through Photoshop and then, of course, post them and they'd vote on them and that sort of thing. And uh, Surge posted two photos of a tall, shadowy figure haunting children at play. Of course, he gave the photos a small story and included with his submission a block of Texas for the first photo. Uh, we didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. 
1983 photographer unknown, presumed dead. So he also had a second one, uh, like I said, and that is this one here in which, and the text is kind of small, but you can actually read it in this one. This was a screenshot actually from the forum. It says, one of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformity cited as film defects by officials. Fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986 photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13th, 1986. I find that funny because I uh, knew somebody named Mary Thomas. Uh, but then you can see the date there, uh, June 10th, uh, 2009 is the date that it was posted. So with strong positive reaction to the photos, uh, Serge continued to post new, new altered photographs and added to the story of what is now being called Slenderman. But now, others on the forum began to submit their own photos and story elements as well. So, elements that got added were uh, he dwelled in the forest. Um, click that off. He, he dwelled in the forest. Uh, he became extremely tall, like, six to 14 feet in height. Of course, he was uh, very thin, as you can see in those photos, completely featureless with a white face, which is kind of the first thing I always throw at people when, when people ask me, is uh, is a Slender Man type of shadow person? Well, no. Uh, first of all, fiction, one. Uh, but two, he's actually a white entity. Um, if you look at his his face and hands in the different uh, you know artwork and everything, he's he's white. Uh, just kind of all wrapped up. He's featureless. He doesn't have, uh, you know, eyes and things like that. And he's also wearing a suit. So no, he's he's not a uh, he's not a shadow person. And then he has these tentacle type things, these tendrils that kind of uh, come out of his back, and they're used to catch his prey. Uh, targets children in many cases. He's also supposed to have abilities in which he can read minds, teleport from one location to another, things like that. Uh, and he's supposed to have like a stronghold in the Nicolay forest, which is one of when, when those girls, um, attempted to, uh, murder their friend, uh, they were within that area of the Nicolay forest. And they believe that by doing this, they would become proxies and then they, they'd end up at a stronghold in, in the forest. So from this, of course, uh, you have myth and lore of Slender Man growing, his story encompassing hundreds of pages. Uh, in, there was an internet urban legend that was born about him. Uh, there was a web series and a, a number of independent video games. He's found a prominent place in the Creepypasta Horror website. And then, uh, you know, of course, fan art, and there was a movie. So he really became like the internet boogeyman that, uh, you know, be careful you know, out there in the internet, the, the Slender Man might get you. But again, he is, um, he's fiction. But he, he also had like a lot of these elements of, um, okay, we mentioned all these different creepy things and, and children were his prey, but he also had like a type of a Pied Piper uh, story that started getting uh, associated with him as well. You know, people started saying, well, you know, he was bullied as a child. And so, um, 
you know, he was, he was taking kids off to a, a better place. You know, so it kind of turned from this creepy, only almost murderous sort of thing into a, um, you know, we're going to save some of these children, we might do some nefarious things to them. We not, we might not, it, it became this whole mishmash of, of lore and story that just ended up not making sense. But over time, people started claiming that Slenderman was becoming real. Uh, and this is where the the girls got confused. You know, they're they're reading the stories, uh, you know, they're enjoying the art, they're getting caught up in the web series and the games and all that sort of stuff. But then people started saying, well, he's actually real. Or I've seen him, that sort of thing. Now, personally, I've never seen one legitimate account of him actually being real. But there were people that were claiming that they had actually really seen him. And their stories were believable enough that young, impressionable, adolescent children uh, were becoming influenced by that. So the idea here is that kind of like what you were saying earlier uh, at the very beginning, Sarah, that globally there was a uh, enough possibly energy put into this idea and thought of slender man that he may have actually become real i say possibly again i couldn't tell you one legitimate account but there are plenty of people out there that are touting that they have a legitimate account of seeing him or experiencing him or something like that so that is really the you know the modern boogeyman story mixed in with the idea of the Buddhist thought form. But wait, there's more. There's an idea out there. How should I say this? I guess a methodology that's out there called tulpamancy. And so basically the idea of one who knows how to create a tulpa, a tulpa would be a tulpamancer. The uh, process of doing that would be tulpamancy, kind of like necromancy, right? Uh, it's kind of that combination of terms. And where we're getting this kind of idea from is, I'm going to throw this photo up there. You see a lot of cartoon characters coming out of the mind. Um, and, and really that's kind of where this, this modern Tulpamancy, or what people have referred to as Western Tulpamancy, um, is a little bit different than uh, than really what uh, Alexandra David Niel uh, and these others were were talking about a hundred years ago. Today, they're being used for uh, basically creating a companion, it, mostly. So. Here's kind of the backstory on this, and, and you might shake your head a little bit at this, but it this is legit. So the whole idea of tulpas, tulpamancy, all that sort of thing, after the incident with uh, with Walter B. Gibson, the house on on Gay Street there in Greenwich Village, uh, you know John Keel's involvement, all that sort of thing, that kind of ex was extinguished in the '70s, and really had been since the 1920s, since people were really talking about sentence. So you're having like these big gaps. 
But on a paranormal discussion board, I'm not sure which discussion board this came up on, uh, the idea of tulpamancy was, uh, was, was tossed out there. Some posters on this board uh, began to take the concept seriously and then out of curiosity uh, started trying to create the, their own tulpas. The person who started this conversation uh, basically took that conversation elsewhere. Uh, they, they had another form, their own, uh, which was actually a My Little Pony discussion board. Yes, you heard me correctly, My Little Pony. And it actually got extremely popular there. So um, there was a thread posted by one specific user uh, that shifted in subject from lucid dreaming to tulpamancy. And it drew in a large amount of attention and other people who are interested in this idea of tulpamancy and becoming a tulpamancer. So adult fans of My Little Pony created a their own platform to craft tulpas based on their favorite characters from the show. And so you end up with these interesting stories of, you know, and it's not just My Little Pony, that's kind of where it got started with this idea of projecting your thoughts about this character out into the universe to create a sentient being of this character to be your companion. So there are other like anime shows and things like this where, you know, people are trying to manifest for real their favorite cartoon characters into the real world. And some people claim that they have, that, you know, it does become a sentient being that at first it seems like, you know, it's, um, you know, it's just their, their own thought that's running through their head. But at some point it becomes its own sentient being with, with its own thoughts and ideas. And they're able to have conversation with this. So, um, and there's some interesting material out there on it because, there's there's a couple of concerns here. You know, one, um, are we talking like invisible friends here? Uh, is there a question of borderline schizophrenia, that sort of thing going on? Um, but with any of these different things that we're talking about, um, like back in the day, that's I say back in the day, you know, 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. You're talking about you know somebody that is living in a haunted house, hearing voices, seeing things moving around, uh, seeing apparitions, that sort of thing. If you were too vocal about that, a lot of times you'd find yourself in a straitjacket and being thrown away into a, an asylum somewhere. So we can't totally discredit it. Also, uh, you know, with the idea that we're already talking here about, you know, these are ancient Buddhist concepts. Okay, sure, fine. We're talking, you know, in this. You know, Western idea of tulpamancy. We're talking cartoon characters that they're trying to manifest. Well, you know, that's uh, probably a misuse of what something that's quite powerful. You know, we're, we, throughout this conversation, we've talked about you know astral projecting. Uh, we have you know talked about um, you know being able to you know create you know actual like legitimate objects like hills and you know bridges and things like that which would which would you know serve some uh 
some significant uses. So a lot of different, more powerful concepts that we're talking about from the past taking a really different twist and turn here in modern times. So while it's, yeah, okay, the cartoony nature, nature of it makes you want to take it with a grain of salt, there might be something legitimate to it. So it's, it's a different use of this type of manifestation power. And you know, I saw some of the different comments uh, in there. So yeah, like I saw Tom, uh, you know, talking about the secret and things like that. So, I mean, and that's, and that's really what we're talking about. Just instead of just a thought making something happen, now we're talking about a thought becoming something. And it has its roots into uh, some very ancient religions and esoteric knowledge from long, long ago. So, all right, everybody, that is it for this evening. Uh, and yes, yeah, Sarah, everyone wants to be Batman or Superman. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, certainly. So that's it for this evening. I really do appreciate everybody who joined us for the live presentation of this class Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. That's where those listening to the audio version of this later uh, can come and watch the entire presentation. So we did... Uh, primarily slideshow this evening, uh, but many times we incorporate video as well. And of course, you know, on the back end of the Connected Universe Portal member site, I, I did refer to uh, the, the article section that we have there, but we also have many other uh, wonderful things back there as well, especially those travel blogs. People re have really enjoyed those, those travel blogs that are back there. So all right, everybody, that will do it for this evening. Until next time, if time really exists.